I often wonder as I stand with you if we are aware of the commitments we're making when we sing. With arms high and hearts abandoned, we give our soul to you. We give you the right to speak to our lives. And in many respects, that's what the sermon is about this morning. Please turn in your copies of the scriptures to Nehemiah 13. For those of you who have been here, you know that this is the final uh, passage in the series that we've been doing on Ezra and Nehemiah. It has been a rich and powerful series for myself. I, I'll let you speak to that. But it is about building together. Here are some observations as we, uh, as we think about the last few months in this. And particularly in the book of Nehemiah, um, maybe I'm too old and I don't remember Ezra anymore. But uh, Ezra was about building an opposition. And, and how to stand together and build a temple, a place of worship, a place where God is honored, and, and, and building together. And then Nehemiah, one of the things that I, I thought about Nehemiah in, in preparing for this, is how that, I think it was Chris that talked about how Nehemiah's burden. He had this burden from the Lord, and it turned into a call. It moved him into action, but he did that because he immediately turned to prayer and fasting. He turned to God and allowed the burden that God had placed on him to become his call. And I've been thinking about that a lot when we talk about call and gifting and all that. I, I love those things, but, but do we actually hear the heart of God in that as well? God, what is it that you want me to become in this? And then how his leadership led to the walls being built in 52 days. I remember uh, one of the things that Sam talked about when he was here. So we built the walls together. And next to them was, and next to them was, and all these families who had, who had come back and, and had, had been minimized and suffered and and, and suddenly they're being rallied together and next to them. And I'm sure that there were differences. And remember, there was a few of them who said, no, we're not doing it. It said the, their nobles refused to do it. They were either lazy or they just wanted to put uh, sand in the wheels. Or I'm not, we're not, you know, but, but there was also opposition in that. And then how Nehemiah was willing to step back and let Ezra step back into his role as the priest of God and speak to the people, and how that led to a spiritual revival. And how in that revival, the people realized who they were, who God was, and what would really give them the heart of God in their passion. And, and then how that revival and change leads to joy. One of the takeaways that I've taken from the book of, of Nehemiah is that joy is not something you manufacture. Joy is not something you drum up. Joy is something that comes out of your life, a life that is in tune with God. And joy can be experienced in the hardest of times and in the best of times. Sometimes, uh, interestingly enough, it is almost more difficult to experience joy in the best of times than it is in the hardest of times. And sometimes joy looks completely different. Sometimes joy is tears. Sometimes joy is laughter. Joy is an outpouring of our heart back to God. 
So now we're at the end. And what I want you to think about today, as the people of God, and let me just explain, I'm going to use the term the people of God. I think one of the mistakes that Christianity has made over the last uh, probably several hundred years, but particularly in the last number of years, they've disconnected the Old Testament and the ways that God has moved in the Old Testament from the New Covenant. And the same God who spoke to the people of God in the Old Testament speaks to the people of God today. God has not changed. He is the ancient of days. And neither have we changed much. The same struggles that they have, we have. And Israel is no longer, the chosen nation Israel has been expanded. It is still in existence. But uh, St. Paul in Romans says, the true Israel are those whose hearts have been circumcised. And so when he speaks to Israel, he's speaking to us. And he's saying, these are the people of God, his followers today. And so as the people of God, we find our place in the kingdom by praying, fasting, and hearing from God. The second thing I want you to know is there is always opposition to the work of God. There is an intent by the evil one, and he works through people and through circumstances, but there is an intent by the evil one to destroy the work of God. And if we don't recognize that, we lose an important part of the puzzle. There is always opposition to the true work of God. And the people of God experience true joy when they pay attention to God and what God is calling them to. Now, we have put a lot of focus on Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah being a place of building. And sometimes a part of building is also looking at the inside of ourselves and saying what's really going on there. And that's what happens today. So Nehemiah 13, please uh, uh, follow along in your copies of the scriptures. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, so right before this, Eliashab the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and the contribution for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashab had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. I love that. I I looked up what that word throw means, and it literally means throw. doesn't mean move carefully outside. He threw it out. And I brought back uh, Sorry, verse 9. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field. 
So I confronted the officials and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithes of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as a treasure over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan son of Zachor, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in, in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wines, grape, wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyranians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take oaths in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourself. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on the account of such women? Among the many nations there, were no, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made, him even, made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiad, the son of Elisheb, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his own work, and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed time and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Now, in an initial reading of this passage, one could say that Nehemiah was rather dramatic. And he obviously was. Throwing furniture out is not everyday behavior. Neither is pulling hair. But let us think a little bit about what it is that so bothers him about what the people are doing. First of all, is this issue 
of the Ammonites and Moabites mingled in with God's people. And included in that is, is Tobiah. Now, in, in Ezra and Nehemiah, as we've gone on this journey of, of listening to what God has spoken to the children of Israel, there have been three primary enemies to the people. Tobiah, the Sanballat, and uh, is it Gishon the Arab? Those three have led the charge against the children of Israel. And uh, in fact, it was uh, Tobiah Sanballat who said when they were putting up the walls, the walls that they did in 52 days, <laughs> don't worry about them, they're going to fall, a fox could make them fall over. So Nehemiah left. <clears throat> this is not the same time that, that Ezra read the, the law to the children of Israel. This is later. He left, and he went back to the king, and probably in his position as wine, uh, the wine sampler, and, and he, came, he has now come back, and he comes back, and the people who he stood against, the people who were his strongest opposition, are in the house of God. And you can imagine, as he comes in, and the people are uh, content, happy, and, and Nehemiah begins to look around, and he says, what's going on here? And word begins to spread. Now, <clears throat> these seem, in our modern world, these seem... Things seem like such trivial, trivial things. What is the big deal here? Why do these things demand such a response from Nehemiah? There's a couple reasons for that. One is that the Ammonites and the Moabites, and, and Tobiah being one of them, are the traditional enemies of, of God. They had made a serious attempt to curse God's people by hiring Balaam. Remember, they hired Balaam, and they wanted the king of the Ammonites and Moabites wanted him to curse God's people. And then his, uh, God had to speak through a donkey that time. By the way, that's a fascinating story. Because when ba- Balaam is so intent on the money that he's going to get from Balak, the king, that as he's going along, he, um, the donkey speaks and Balaam isn't even surprised. It's just a really fascinating story that you should read to your children with that same idea of, whoa, whoa, whoa. My dog has never spoken. But if my dog spoke, I think I would say, whoa. But Balaam doesn't even because he's so intent on, on going his own way. But God does wake him up and he does the right thing. Now, the Ammonites and the Moabites are also the people who have stood against the children of Israel in this present attempt to, to rebuild Jerusalem. They're, they're the leaders there. And so what this shows us, and there, there's three big pieces, remember, did you notice when I read this that three times Nehemiah says, remember me. Remember me. And if you take all the things preceding that and lump them together, so you've got the Ammonites and the Moabites intermingled with God's people. You've got, the, um, you've got Tobiah living in the chamber. And you've got uh, uh, the, the children of Israel, not be, the, the Levites and the singers and those people not being given their portion. And when you, when you take all that into consideration and look at that together... By the way, the place that Tobiah stayed was the, um, was the treasury. So that whoever these people were that gave him access to that, gave him the checkbook. And is he going to support the people of God in their work to rebuild and, and renew their relationships with God? Of course not. 
And so this is about how we actually interact, how the people of God interact with the evil around us. This is a live, present-day question for us. How do we interact with the evil around us? Are we the kind of people that invite it in almost to the Holy of Holies? And those are questions that we want to ask ourselves then. The second kind of big block of, of pieces here is the Sabbath day not being kept. Now, this is, a, this is not so much about keeping one day. And uh, this might be too modern of an explanation. God wanted them to keep a day where they gathered together and a day kind of set aside for them to stop and remember God. And they weren't doing that. They were conducting business seven days a week, just kind of keeping on going. And, and their, their space, their space for God was being shut down. By the way, he, uh, he closes the city gates. And what do the Tyrians, what are they bringing in? Does anyone remember? Fish. How do fish smell when they've been out, outside, unrefrigerated for about a day? So uh, think about how that smell wafted up into Jerusalem and they spelled, smelled spoiled fish. That doesn't sound very appetizing, does it? That's what it smells like to God when we don't take the space to stop. So Nehemiah, and by the way, Nehemiah makes another statement. He says, this is why this city fell into ruin the first time. Do you know what God told the people of Israel when he sent them into captivity the first time? He said, you are going to go into captivity. How many years were they in captivity? 70 years. Why were they in captivity 70 years? Because for 490 years, they had not kept the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee was intended for God's people to stop, for equality to happen. Note, uh, you know, and every 50th year, they had this big, uh, you could only hold a mortgage for 50 years, no longer. Because the, the, things were returned to their rightful owner. It created equality in the kingdom of God. But it also created a space. Suppose we had a year where we didn't plant any crops, we didn't plant any work, we just did the necessary things. That'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? It's called a sabbatical. Because it's, it's, it's intended for us to stop and do something different, to slow down and to remember God. And Nehemiah is saying, now wait, don't you understand? How in this short time could you forget why you were even taken into captivity? We keep talking about this. Have you forgotten? So that's, what, that's what's so big about the Sabbath day. And then the third thing is that they, in those days he saw that Jews who had married women of Ashdod. Now Ashdod is a Philistine city. It's a city of the Philistines. And it was, a, it was the center of worship for Dagon, the god Dagon. And when you see Ashdod, they have pillars that they raised up for, for their god. And, and one of the hallmarks of that worship was child sacrifice. Like that, that deity... The Philistine deity called for children to be sacrificed to the God. They would heat up the statue till his arms were molten hot. The, the, wood, the stone statue. Then they'd throw babies into there. And everyone, when he says Ashdod, people know this. And he's like, why are you doing this? Why are you sacrificing your children by do, going this route? And then he finds out 
that the son-in-law, I mean, the, sorry, the grandson of the chief priest is married to Sanballat, Sanballat's daughter. And he's like, whoa, 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 stop. And by the way, um, this is where he also, uh, I, I went in and, and looked um, in, in the, is this where he pulls the hair? Um, yeah, I cursed them, beat some of them, pulled out their hair. I thought about that, and I thought, I wonder if that's really what it means. And I went back into the original Hebrew, and guess what it means? Pull out their hair. Now, this is not the first time this happens in Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra also pulls out hair, but he pulls out his own hair. And in some ways, that's the difference between these two men of God. Ezra, when he sees what the children of Israel have become, pulls out his own hair in agony. Nehemiah is a much more public figure. He said, look, I'm going to lay hands. I'm going to take action here. And he pulls out. And we need both. We need those people of God who say, oh, we need to stop. And, and as I was thinking about all these things, and I was thinking about these kind of three pieces that these people are wrestling with, I thought, you know what? They're not much different than we are. And by the way, one of the things that, that, uh, that, that I want to just point, three things that, that, that caused Nehemiah to respond like this. Number one, these are the very issues that took Israel into captivity in the first place. These three issues are the very issues that took them into captivity in the first place. He's like, do you want to go back to that? The second thing is, these people had just finished making a promise that they would not do these things. If you read, uh, just flip back to chapter 10. So this is right after Nehemiah's, uh, Ezra's reading of the law. And the, and the rest of the people, uh, they gathered together in verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the, of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons and, do, and daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers and their nobles and enter into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God, his rules and statutes. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring in any goods or grains on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them. Verse 32, we will also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God. And and these people had just finished making a covenant with each other, having this big public ceremony where they say, we're not going to do that. And a few uh, year or two later, Nehemiah comes back and they're already doing that very thing. And he gets mad. And sometimes in the kingdom of God, it is okay for us to rise up and say, stop. This needs to change. We who have grown up in conservative Mennonite circles struggle with knowing what to do with obedience, the law, and those kinds of things. Because for many of us, it's been forcibly imposed on us from the outside. And if we, we need to get over that right now. If we want to be the people of the kingdom of God, we need to stop doing that right now. And we need to say, it doesn't matter what our dad said. It doesn't matter what the church said back there. It matters what God says. And so when we wrestle with issues, we need to go back to say, we need to ask a question like, how is it going to look in it? No, no, don't ask that question. Or what are people going to think about? No, don't ask that question. Say, what does God say about that issue? 
and let him speak to those issues and live out of that. For too many years, our people, and I know this too well myself, have, had, have, have been so worried about what other people think that we, we've, become, uh, we've become mindfully obedient to a set of values and rules that we don't even know whether God is in them. And I'm not asking you to throw everything away. In fact, I'm not. I'm asking you to prayerfully consider what does God say about the big issues of life? We have to wrestle with what God says, not what other people say. So, so, sorry about the rant. No, I'm not sorry about the rant. I'll pull hair too if I need to. I care about this because at the end of the day, who are we going to, I, I just read Revelation 21. We are going to stand, let me, let me just read this to you. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and this is what it says. Then I saw the great white throne and him who sat on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And that isn't about wearing the right kind of suit coat or anything like that. It's about how we live in relation to God, his words, and each other. And I happen to think that the, pre- the issues that Nehemiah raises here are just as present day as they were for the people of God back then, for the people of God today. We, we, there is a constant pressure for us to mingle in some evil with the good. There is just that constant pressure. If you, if you don't know that, then you're living in a hole somewhere. You know, you feel it all the time. Ah, oh, is that really so bad? Is that really, so- oh, come on. I mean, you'll need to just get over that. The second thing, how many of us consistently and regularly set apart a space of time to have a Sabbath with God? Where God can actually speak to our hearts. By the way, on the first one, one of the other issues that is there is the minute they began to mix the evil and the good together, the Ammonite Moabite people, the minute they became uh, miserly. Generosity comes out of having a heart that is in tune with God. Because they quit giving to the temple pieces. And I happen to think that generosity is deeply connected to our own relationship with God. The truest, genuinest, generous people in the world are those who understand what they've been forgiven from and give out of that. And I think that one of the issues that plagues us is that most of you grew up so good. You knew exactly when to break the rule. Oh, no, sorry. You knew exactly when to look and how to look right and how to look. And I think it was Brent that touched on that. Somebody touched on that recently. And in that sense... We often think that it did, just didn't take as much of Jesus for me as it did for somebody who's been really bad. Let me just tell you, you were on your way to hell. You could look the best, obey the best, and be the best. Unless you were willing to so- surrender your life to God. 
And I also happen to think that God didn't ever set up a system. God doesn't set up a religious system. He sets up relationships with people. It's in that relationship that we find what it means to walk with him. And then the third thing is, so the Sabbath is, is central. Do you, how much time do you really take to connect with God? And I'm not, some people are so addicted to their daily devotion they should quit. Don't quit having devotions, okay? But do you know what I'm saying? They get a sense of accomplishment and pride. I had my devotions today. Now I get to go on with the rest of my life. What is it that really God is calling us? He's calling us to a lifelong, strengthening, growing commitment to God. And so it'll look different for every person here. And the minute you try to put your brother and sister into a box that you're in, the box becomes too small because there's two people in it. The third thing is this whole idea of of, um, marrying strange women and then sacrificing your children. What is it that we sacrifice our children to today? Some of us sacrifice our children on the altar of respectability. We want to look so good that we put our children into a box and we expect them to walk such a narrow line that they're rarely, they're not even children. Now, I don't notice it here, okay? Oh, yeah. Or maybe you have certain ideas about how they should be homeschooled or schooled or not homeschooled or whatever. Anytime that you begin to kind of impose your order onto uh, I, I want to be careful I say this. You're charged to raise your children. But in the fear of God. In, the, in a respect for God. And it strikes me that many parents are trying to live their life through their children. And so they, 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 they push their children into a direction that's so strong. Um, uh, my dad could never, never figure out why I would want to go to school. And, and he, he, he would tell me that. But he said, I'm glad that you want to go. And what that did was free me up to go. And when I graduated, he was in the front row. He couldn't barely talk English, you know. He'd just say, he'd just say, uh, he's been so proud von dich. And I remember when we graduated from Yale, and this is not, uh, I, don't, I don't want to toot our own horn with that or anything like that. But he, he couldn't come. We didn't know that he was within three weeks of dying at that moment. And that he wasn't feeling very well. And, and he called that morning, and I have saved that message. And the message said, I wish Mom and I could be there. It's a long drive over there. They had just visited a couple weeks before. He said, I want you to know, that I, I don't understand what the, you know, I don't understand what all you learned, but we're really proud of you. And what that does is free up a child to become who God wants him to be, rather than who my dad wanted me to be. So, in the modern world that has lost its moorings, how is it that we are called to live? I I thought about this. I think that God calls us to obedience. Not mindless obedience. What is the opposite of mindless? Mindful. What does that mean? Having purpose. Thinking. God calls us to 
mindful, purposeful, thoughtful obedience. And I'm guaranteeing you, if you do that, it will look different. God, God does not need more mindless people. He's got enough of them. He needs people who are thoughtful and intentional in following him. And obedience is not what we've made it out to be, where it's like keeping the law. Mm-hmm. If you don't keep the law, the cop will stop you. You know what obedience is? Obedience is choosing life. At the end of Moses' life in Deuteronomy 30, and it's time, I need to slow to wind this thing down. But the end of his life in Deuteronomy 30, he says, he, he gathers all the children of Israel together. They're all young. They're ready to go into the promised land. It's his last sermon to them. And he says, I want you to remember one thing. I want you to choose life. When, the, when it's presented before you, choose life. You know what? That is what obedience is. Obedience is saying, I choose life. It's not easy or anything like that. But it's choosing life in every situation. And so when we face the situations of life, am I going to do this? Should I do this? Should I wear this? Should I not wear this? What, what should I think? Ask God to hear his voice and then follow the path that brings the most life. That's what obedience is. That's, it's that simple. It's not about wearing the right kind of clothes for the right thing. It's about choosing life. And when I see it like that, it gives me hope because I can do that. But I can't meet all the expectations of the entire world watching. But I can choose life. The second thing that I think that God wants, so um, mindful, purposeful, thoughtful obedience. The second thing is God wants interactive worship. If God wanted to, he could tear open the heavens and the seven billion people on this planet would fall flat on their face because they would have seen the awesome glory of the ancient of days. And instead he doesn't. He chooses to veil himself. And in that veiling, it gives us an opportunity to mindfully and intentionally begin the process of worshiping the ancient of days. There are a few incidents in Scripture Daniel, Revelation, where men and women are allowed to see pieces of the future where all of humanity will fall down before God. But we aren't there yet, and so not all of humanity falls down. And I think that in some ways, I I really appreciate our worship team. In the past, many of our people have been taught the awe of God has been so pushed. I believe in the awe of God. God is an awesome ancient of days. He is beyond compare. You can't even put human words to it. But, but he wants a thoughtful, interactive worship, not a cowering, fearful kind of worship. He wants a thoughtful, interactive worship where we say, God, you are the ancient of days. And in that, and again, we come back to this thing, when we see who God is, who we are, and what he wants for us, it creates worship and choosing life. And so Nehemiah is calling his people to a way that is completely different than they've ever experienced. They've been slaves. They've been taken captive, just as you have. And Jesus has called you out of that captivity into the kingdom of life. You're part of something that is taking over the world, that is sweeping the world, and God is inviting us into it. We just celebrated D-Day on Thursday, the, one of the greatest invasions in all of human history, as the Allied forces swarmed across the channel and fought for a toehold into the mainland of Europe. 
And in the same way, when Jesus came down out of heaven, lived his life, died, took all that death could throw at him, and resurrected over the power of death, he created a a bridge into the enemy's territory. And then he goes to heaven 40 days later, and he tells his disciples, these 12 weak men and a few women who have been around him, he said, all power is given unto me, now I give it to you. Go into all the world and make disciples. He trusts us with the kingdom. And when we view it like that, there's something joyful, there's something delightful about saying, hey, uh, can, can I take you, can I invite you to talk about your own personal life? So, mindful, thoughtful obedience. Worship with an understanding of who we are and who God is. And then speaking life into the world. Let's stand together. I have a fairly strong pledge not to go over time, but I did. I will not apologize for that. But I will invite you to think about your own life. Are you in one of those three places where you're stingy and miserly and kind of deeply connected with the things out the Ammonites and Moabites of our world? Or are you not making the time and space for God? Are you sacrificing to the wrong God? If you are, there's only one answer. It's found in a person, not in a system. It's found in Jesus. Let us pray together. Lord, we invite your power and your presence to speak to our hearts this morning as Nehemiah did to his people and to speak directly to the issues of our own sinfulness, of our own brokenness, and our own pain. And I invite you this morning, Jesus, to speak to our idolatry. Help us to become mindful, thoughtful followers of life. Help us to understand who we are, who you are, and worship in that. And then take that into the world. Remember us, O God, concerning this. Do not wipe out our good deeds that we have done for the house of God and for his service. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.